0: Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. This is, in fact, The Conspiracy Show, the one and only, and my name is Richard Serrett. Would you like to do an iris scan for me to prove it? I can do that if you'd like. Uh, glad you found us. Come on in and uh, hang your cloak on the peg, grab a stool, and warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. Uh, Brent Holland, Canadian JFK assassination researcher and composer extraordinaire, is standing by uh, as we prepare to commemorate the, get this, 52 years, the 52nd anniversary of the slaying of the 35th president. And uh, Brent uh, Holland has the distinction of being the one and only Canadian asked to speak at the 50th anniversary of the assassination uh, back in, um, in well, two years ago in Dallas at Dealey Plaza. This was sort of the officially sanctioned JFK memorial, and uh, he was asked to speak there. And why? Well, uh, because he has friends in high places, and he holds the distinction of being one of the last people, if not the last person, to interview JFK's speechwriter, advisor, close friend, Theodore Chaikin Sorensen, Ted Sorensen, who wrote uh well, he wrote JFK speeches and, and um uh we'll we'll get into that and how maybe one of those speeches may have been the final nail in the coffin. Um that's all up and coming. Wow, what a pleasure. Every day above ground <laughs> is a good day. Am I right? It's so good to be here. And I've got to tell you, uh, if there is one thing that these recent spate of cowardly uh, ISIS murderous rampages have done, is uh, draw me closer to family, uh, closer to God. Uh, you know, they just don't get it. They do not get it. Every suicide vest they strap on... Every cowardly act uh, that they commit is just making us stronger and more resolute. Uh, They're having the exact opposite effect that they're intending. Um, Listen, I have seen the movie. I know how this ends. They lose. They lose. Uh, Howard Neal. Uh, is uh, the anchor of the normally staid and conservative BBC program this week. And his perspective on ISIS, uh, uh, I happened to see it on YouTube recently, and it is spot-on, inspiring, worth repeating, and uh, I hope you'll look it up on YouTube. I actually tweeted uh, Howard's Howard Neal's little diatribe, um, and I hope some f- scumbag fifth columnist out there is listening. Uh, Tim, can you play that for us? This is Howard Neal from BBC This Week on ISIS.
2: Even all, welcome to this week, the week in which a bunch of loser jihadists slaughtered 132 innocents in Paris to prove the future belongs to them, rather than a civilization like France. Well, I can't say, I fancy their chances. France, the country of Descartes, Boulay, Monet, Sartre, Rousseau, Camus, Renoir, Berlioz, Cézanne, Gauguin, Hugo, Voltaire, Matisse, Debussy, Ravel, Sanson, Bizet, Satie, Pasteur, Molière, Frank, Zola, Balzac, Polonk, cutting-edge science, world-class medicine, fearsome security forces, nuclear power, Coco Chanel, Chateau Lafitte, Coco Van, Daft Punk, Zizou Zidane, Juliette Binoche, Liberty, Egality, Fraternity and Creme Brulee. Versus what? Beheadings, crucifixions, amputations, slavery, mass murder, medieval squalor, a death cult barbarity that would shame the Middle Ages. Well, IS or Dash or ISIS or ISIL or whatever name you're going by, I'm sticking with IS, as in Islamist scumbags. I think the outcome is pretty clear to everybody but you. Whatever atrocities you're currently capable of committing, you will lose. In a thousand years' time, Paris, that glorious city of lights, will still be shining bright, as will every other city like it, while you will be as dust, along with a ragbag of fascists, Nazis, and Stalinists that have previously dared to challenge democracy and failed.
1: Wow. Damn, Iris. I wish I said that. Howard Neal, BBC This Week. Thank you. And uh, again, go on Twitter... Uh, you'll find the YouTube link on my uh, my feed, at Richard Sarrett. Retweet it. Send it to your friends. Makes a wonderful Christmas card, I think. Uh, all right. Uh, Tim Spreen is here, my old technical producer. It's old home week here. Uh, back for a short visit, twisting the knobs and dials. Welcome back, Tim. Uh, Albert Vinzel is here, my story producer. Albert is running our Hangout on Air. Uh, and if you don't know about the Hangout on Air, this allows you into the inner sanctum you can actually watch the radio program as it happens you'll see me my enormous bulbous head (laughs) sorry about that Uh, but you'll also see our guest on the other end of the uh, the webcam or the other end of the uh, the hangout and uh, you just go to uh, my Twitter feed at Richard Serrett that's R-I-C-H-A-R-D, Richard, and Sarrett S-Y, because I love you, T -T, -T -T, at Richard Sarrett. And then, that's the Twitter feed. Go to the top of the feed, and you'll find the tweet there with the HOA link. You just click on it. That's all. You click on it, and you are in. Uh, Don't forget to download the free Conspiracy Show app at iTunes and Google Play. I think we're around, what is it, Albert? Nearly 3,000 subscribers now. To the It's, it's growing. It's getting there. Uh, but it's great. You can take the Conspiracy Show with you wherever you go. And I have to tell you, it is uh, – and, and uh, again, special thanks to Sharon Forster uh, who developed this and Albert who really spearheaded uh, this as well. It is one of the most powerful, innovative apps of any radio program. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm getting all choked up and verklempt just talking about it. But it is um, – it's, it's really something. Okay. So I, I – uh, I encourage you to download that and take the program with you wherever you go. All right, 52 years. Well, I was, uh, I was yet to be born. I was about, uh, well, maybe just less than two months away from coming into this world. Um, since the executive branch was taken over <clears throat> in a coup d'etat, uh, who are the trigger men? Uh, well, that's, I guess, the $64 million question. Uh, but things changed on that day, no question, and uh, the effects are still reverberating even to this day. And it's uh, always a great pleasure around this time of year to welcome a, a good friend of the program. He is a, a multi award winning music composer. He is, you know, he's just one of these Canada's best kept secrets. Uh, he's a talk show host out of Kingston and a JFK researcher. Uh, The author of The Kennedy Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza. And uh, we're going to discuss his his insider knowledge gleaned from the last interview he had and one of the last interviews granted by Ted Sorensen, President Kennedy's trusted advisor, speechwriter, friend, shortly before Sorensen died in 2010. But let me just take a few moments to let you in on uh, some of Brent Holland's other accomplishments. Again, he is a multi-award winning music composer for feature films and television. In fact, his score for the Canadian feature film 21 Brothers, which was about Canadians in the trenches of World War I, is in the Guinness World Book of Records. He has a BFA in music and BFA in theater design, having worked extensively in paranormal ra- uh, sorry in in this area he's the host of the radio program Night fright Paranormal Radio and he's also known for having the uh well I mentioned the last interview with Sorensen he's the host of Canada's successful Night fright radio show. He goes head-to-head with major players in the Kennedy assassination research circles. Mark Lane, Lee Oswald's only legal representative, uh, James Eugenio, who's been on the program many times, Lamar Waldron, crime scene experts, Sherry Feister, G. Paul Chambers. Um, and his book also includes high-impact first-person witness accounts, such as Dr. Robert McClellan, the Parkland Hospital doctor who tried to save John F. Kennedy's life, the Daily Plaza witnesses James Tagg and Beverly Oliver... Uh, Masage, uh Abraham Bolden, the first African-American Secret Service, S- Secret Service agent who was handpicked uh, by JFK. He is really just, you know, he's talked to them all, and he's a, a tremendous resource and a really a treasure trove of information, and we're always delighted to have Brent Holland right here on The Conspiracy Show. Brent, how are you, my friend?
3: Very good, but I'm going to need your address to send you that check for 100 bucks for saying so many nice things about me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, oh, Albert, you give him his address because I can use that hundred bucks. Believe me. <laughs>
3: okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Richard, for having me back. It's really good to hear your voice, my friend.
1: Uh, Brent, before we get into the JFK stuff, t- tell me about um, just a, a slight departure here. But I, what is it uh, in the Guinness World Book of Records uh, in terms of the of uh, your score for Twenty One Brothers? Your your score is in the Guinness World Book of Records, but what is the actual record?
3: The record is actually for the film itself, which was shot in a single take, and uh, it is quite spectacular, actually, because it tells the story, as you said, of our very own Canadians in the First World War—a regiment based on a true story, a regiment from Kingston that was uh, in the that were in the trenches during the First World War, and it um, it goes through the mundane life that each one of these people has to go through, but in a single take. And the whole movie lasts for around 100 and, oh, 100-odd minutes or so. And um, the camera never stops moving. Uh, It's just an amazing accomplishment. The story is uh, riveting, completely riveting. The characters are perfect. Uh, There's composite characters, of course, but they're characters everybody can relate to. And uh, it does our guys proud. It really does. I think you'll be quite pleased with it when you see it for you folks, especially those of you from Canada.
1: All right. Um, Now, let's um, let's talk about Ted Sorensen, because he is really pivotal, uh, especially when we start to understand... The the sorts of things he was telling you back in in 2000 and, and, well, just before he died in 2010. But, you know, I I mentioned he was his speechwriter, Kennedy's speechwriter, his advisor, his friend. But give us a glimpse into into this man. Who was he and what did he mean to Jack Kennedy?
3: Sure, absolutely, without question. But first, can I just give a shout-out to uh, all our French brothers and sisters? Uh, Nous sommes avec vous toujours, maintenant. Uh, we're all together in this fight, folks, and uh, this is what I'm trying to convey to the French people, that as Richard said, and only Richard could say it the best, uh, I have to commend him on this. We know the outcome of this story, and they're not going to win. We've been through this narrative before, Nazi Germany and elsewhere. Not gonna happen. And that's pretty good segue into Ted Sorensen because Ted Sorensen told me uh, Ted Sorensen, folks, was JFK's speechwriter, his closest aide. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was Ted that JFK trusted with the future of mankind. What he did was he asked Ted to write a letter to Khrushchev to ask Khrushchev to back down. Ted laid out all the Peripherals, if you will, all the important aspects of what was taking place during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Ted was integral in putting that paper a pen to paper and sending it to Khrushchev. Khrushchev took a look at it, agreed to it all, and that was the end of the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. But how close were we in 1962 of October?
1: A hair's There's width old- from a, a hair's width. Oh, Brent, I got I got to cut in. We're going to take uh, a break here. Uh, but you've set the table nicely. Ted Sorensen perhaps averted World War III. That's how important he was. Back with more of my conversation with Brent Holland about Ted Sorensen and the 52nd anniversary of the assassination of JFK, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Do not go away. Uh, welcome back. Brent Holland is with us, JFK assassination researcher, and uh, his book, The Kennedy Assassination. From the Oval Office to Daly Plaza, but he's also a great Canadian composer uh, and also holds the distinction of having one of the last interviews with JFK's trusted advisor, friend and speechwriter, Ted Sorensen. You mentioned Sorensen's role in defusing the Cuban Missile Crisis, perhaps avoiding or averting World War III by writing the letter to Khrushchev, which sort of walked him off the ledge. Uh, But there was another famous um, uh, speech that Sorensen wrote, and some have suggested that this may have been the nail in the coffin uh, for Kennedy in terms of annoying uh, the military-industrial complex. This was the, was the speech he delivered in June, the summer before his assassination in 1963, at the American University in 19 well in 1963, the American University in Washington D.C. and Uh, the commencement speech where he talked about seeking a nuclear test ban treaty and so forth. What do you think? Was that the speech that perhaps was the final straw?
3: I agree with you. It was certainly an important part of why he was killed. Uh, Sorensen even mentioned that, the fact that uh, there were so many people in the military-industrial complex that were annoyed with Kennedy. Sorensen even went on to say that that particular speech in particular um, was one that the military-industrial complex was really irate about because he was reaching out for uh, not a Pax Americana, uh, as he says, with use of gunboat diplomacy, but actually listening, trying to create a dialogue, uh, dialogue for before bullets. And uh, Sorensen told me that he felt that there was so many people annoyed with JFK over civil rights, for example, the far right were was annoyed, uh, were annoyed with uh, JFK for promoting civil rights and so many other things that this was just one more, um, specifically, one more uh, nail in the coffin for JFK that they would, could rally around. Kennedy wasn't just killed for one reason. He was killed for a multitude of reasons. The mafia certainly had reason to kill him. Sorensen told me this because Bobby was coming so heavily down upon the mafia, Hoffa, and all the rest of them. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was an undercover agent put in with Carlos Marcello in the, um, in the 80s but with a radio with a transduce, transducer on it, and we have it on tape that Carlos Marcello... Marcello uh, openly brags about having the uh, having Kennedy killed, and we have that on tape. Now, why mainstream media has ignored this? I have no idea. And thank goodness for a show like yours, Richard, so that I'm able to tell this story to the folks, and you probably know it as well, too, and we can get the truth out there that there was a conspiracy behind the assassination of the president. The ramifications of that, I feel, we're still feeling to this day when I look at... Um, Uh, The resurgence, I feel, of the Cold War with Putin, without question, uh, I don't think we would have the problems in the Middle East that we are facing right now, and certainly without the extremism and the terrorism that we're we're facing right now. Because Kennedy's foreign policy, this is another thing that was overlooked uh, after the assassination, was one of reaching out, was one of understanding, was one of um, offering peace, before bullets, if you will. Dialogue before bullets. <clears throat> Pardon me. That's why he started the Peace Corps. That's why he was uh, so influential in trying to stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons in the Middle East. And um, there were so many things that changed November 26th, the 22nd, 1963. Uh, they're just insurmountable.
1: Well, uh, my... my uh sort of bird's eye view of this whole situation is that, uh, and we've talked about this, but I see this as, and I I think you concur, this was a coup d'etat. And in many ways, it it almost doesn't matter who was in the White House. Uh, Well, that's not entirely true. If whoever was the occupant of the White House, had it been Nixon, uh, he probably would have played, played ball with the national security state for a time. Uh, But Kennedy was a sacrificial lamb who walked into this not really knowing what he was in for, not knowing that he was surrounded. I think once he got there, he realized quickly and too late that he was surrounded by uh, these hawks and this national security state. And so Kennedy, uh, just because of his worldview, his tour of Southeast Asia as a senator and so forth and his, his view of the developing world and America's place in that world, which was diametrically opposed in many ways to sort of the, the goals and aspirations of the developing world, uh, he was in dia- he was diametrically opposed to the, the, the goals of the national security state of the United States. And so he had to go. He was, as far as they were concerned, a national security threat.
3: Completely. I'm going to pick up on two things that you mentioned. When he first came to office, Alan Dulles, um, I'm in Kingston right now, folks. Just across from Kingston is a place called Watertown, Upper State, New York. That's where Alan Dulles was born, just a very small place, four or 5,000 people still to this day. He became head of the CIA. He put together a proposal to allow anti-Castro Cubans who had fled Castro and Cuba in 1959, he put together a proposal called the Bay of Pigs where they would go back in, 1,500 of them, and try and take over the island. Hopefully people on the island he felt were so repressed that they would rise up and join in. So he did his own study. The study said definitively that this plan was bound for failure. Alan Dulles hid that from the President of the United States. So Kennedy went in along with the plan to go into the Bay of Pigs, even though the CIA knew it was bound to fail. Well, once he got into it, Sorensen told me, he said that there was no way he was going to risk putting American military um, support for, the, for these guys, because that would just inflame the situation. It was already lost at that point. He had also specifically told the CIA and the military planners that he would not use military support from the U.S. in any sense to help out with this cause at all. Uh, He would train them, but that was the extent of it. So once it started to flounder on the beach and Alan Dulles tried to blackmail JFK, a young JFK, into allowing American air support uh, from Florida, he mixed that right away. He said, all that's going to do is inflame the situation and we may end up in a nuclear war. And certainly a year later, that almost happened. Um, He ended up firing Alan Dulles and several other key people that were in charge of this cover-up. Now, this cover-up only came out years later after JFK had passed away. Sorensen had told me this. But Sorensen was very, very visually enraged the fact that the CIA would lie to their own commander-in-chief. The other uh, aspect I wanted to pick up on was... um, he would also mention that Sorensen was integral in the, uh, the, the letter. We were so close to nuclear war that Kennedy, Sorensen told me, Kennedy had called his wife to bring the two kids home, ja- uh, Jackie, who would have been Jackie, Carolyn, and uh, young John to the White House because they felt the bombs were going to drop the next day and they all wanted to be together when they died that's so
1: close we people don't i mean i wasn't the, uh, around at the time but i have i have talked to people who were and i I'm, when i was shooting my tv show i was speaking on an entirely different episode it happened to, 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 it happened to be about the uh, the death of marilyn monroe but i spoke with uh someone who was sort of covering that case and uh he talked about because monroe's connection to the kennedys we all know about that but he, and he talked about The Cuban Missile Crisis, and he was in Los Angeles at the time, and he, he, listening on the car radio, as these reports were going down, and he, he told me, at one point, he and his wife traveling in the car, they pulled the car over, and they were hugging each other, crying and saying, I love you, I love you, thinking, this is the end. This is the end. That's how close people felt whether it was actually that close or not. But this is how palpable the fear was among uh, people at that time that, you know, the nukes were about to start flying. I mean, I can't even imagine the terror.
3: No. Uh, And and it is terrifying, and we can think that the same thing could happen at any point if Syria escalates and the United States doesn't want to go along with what Putin's doing to try and combat ISIS. And we can get in a heck of a mess. Uh, Just from a Canadian standpoint... John Diefenbaker was um, prime minister at the time, and it was renowned that there was kind of a wall between the two, uh, President Kennedy and John Diefenbaker. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, Diefenbaker refused, outright refused refused, with the Canadian military, even on alert. That's how, that's how pissed off he was with, with Kennedy. He felt Kennedy had got them in this mess, and he didn't want to even try and help to get Kennedy out of the mess. So there was that brick wall between the two of them that, um, unfortunately, uh, didn't uh, recede anywhere. And um, we ended up with Pearson, of course, thank goodness. And Mike Pearson was a staunch ally of NATO and started the the NATO um, uh, peacekeeping. So... um, That was a little bit of history there from the Canadian aspect.
1: All right. Brent Holland is uh, with us as we commemorate the 52nd anniversary of the assassination of uh, JFK here on The Conspiracy Show. And uh, uh, you want to get out and get Brent's book, uh, The Kennedy Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza. We are coming up on a break. Uh, We'll start the conversation now, continue it after. But I I want to talk about your final conversation with Ted Sorensen and some of the... the, the, uh, the bombs that he dropped concerning his thoughts and the assassination. Now, give us the uh, the timing and the circumstances surrounding this last interview. He was in New York at the time, was he not?
3: He was. I was down there to interview three Nobel Peace laureates, and I had already interviewed Ted for my radio show. And I, I just wanted to meet and greet him. I mean, he was virtually a hero of mine from day one, uh, and given the fact he saved the world with the pen, uh, rather than the sword. So I called up his handlers. Handlers said, give me, give me 15 minutes. She called me back. She said, be at his Manhattan apartment tomorrow at 4 o'clock. So I went over there, and I brought my handy cam with me just just to archive it. It certainly wasn't going to be a documentary or a television show or anything of that nature. Um, it was just for my own personal archive. And honest to goodness, it wasn't for an interview. It was just a meet and greet. I thought he was going to meet me at the door, say, hi, Brent. I was going to say, hi, Mr. Sorenson, and that would have been enough for me. <laughs> and I would have just turned around and gone right back down the elevator. And uh, he lived right beside where John Lennon uh, had lived in Manhattan, just to give you an idea of the area. Was oh,
1: just- in the Dakota itself or beside the Dakota?
3: just right beside the Dakota.
1: Okay, so right there at, uh, on, uh, on Central Park West.
3: There you go. So for a kid like me who grew up in a very Irish working-class place called Verdun in Montreal, this was out of this world. <laughs> so I was already on cloud nine. We settled into uh, opposite sides of his couch. I put the uh, camera up, and he unloaded. He completely unloaded about the assassination. He unloaded about um, things that went on in the Kennedy administration. For for example, he was, I had asked him, did JFK ever piss you off? He said, no, never. Uh, JFK was never mad at him. He was never mad at JFK, although he wished JFK had um, accelerated the civil rights bill before he had passed away. And in the end, what happened, of course, is Johnson took that civil rights bill to Congress and it finally got
1: passed. All right, Brent. we that were the uh, only complaint. All right. Well, we are, we're heading into a break. We'll come back and continue to discuss the uh, the final recorded words of JFK's uh, speech uh, writer, chief advisor, and good friend, Tent Sorensen, according to Brent Holland, author of The Kennedy Assassination from the Oval Office to Daily Plaza. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Before we get back to my conversation with JFK researcher, broadcaster, composer, Brent Holland. Just some programming notes upcoming on the program. Uh, Janet Sitchin, uh, the the niece of Zachariah Sitchin, uh, will be uh, along to talk about her new book, The Anunnaki Chronicles, a Zachariah Sitchin reader, which includes never-before-published writings from her uncle, Uh, Also, coming up next week, Graham Hancock will be with us and Debbie Papadakis, our past life regression uh, therapist, will be here to talk about how to remove blockages. uh, And always a pleasure to have Debbie on the program. And uh, we've got some amazing shows that we're working on uh, for you coming up in December leading into uh, Christmas. So uh, just keep checking the website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and go to the radio page The Conspiracy Show. Uh, to keep updated on what's coming up. All right, Brent. Uh, so there you are in uh, Ted Sorensen's apartment, and as you say, he unloads on you unexpectedly about what um, what his thoughts on the on the Kennedy assassination. Now, what is per- perhaps the most explosive thing that he told you regarding the events of November the twenty second?
3: Well, what he told me. Um and it's pretty much almost verbatim. He said, this year we're going to find out why JFK was killed. Now, I emphasize the word why, because for me that word, singularly, singularly, indicates that there was some thought behind the assassination. If there was planning behind the assassination, if there was that thought, that means conspiracy. That means it wasn't just one lone nut guy acting on a whim, and that is very scary. Now, when you put that together with the other things he told me about military intelligence, he wouldn't give any names because he didn't know the actual names of the shooters or or the planners or anything like that. But I could tell he 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 was ready to give it up, and um, I think we're going to find out more as uh, things progress. Especially now that Cuba has lowered the barrier, and I think that um, I think there's going to be more and more information coming out, especially if Castro passes away. Now, I don't think Castro or the Soviet Union, either did Sorensen, by the way folks, had anything whatsoever to do with the assassination. Um, but certainly uh, it, there's some reasons why we're waiting so long, and I think it's it's national security. One of the things I did ask him, Richard, specifically, and this was several years ago, was about terrorism. And with your permission, I'd like to read just his answer um, from my book, that's okay. Absolutely,
1: yes. This is, again, these are the so words I, of I, Ted Sorensen, the last interview that he gave.
3: I think it's apropos, because, you know, we've been talking about terrorism and various ways to try and combat it, and To me, this makes a lot of sense. I said, sir, if you were in charge right now, how would you deal with the terrorism that's going on in the world? And the knife at the United States' throat. His answer was, I would try to do all possible to regain the respect that the world had for the United States at the time. John F. Kennedy was president. Nobody was threatening us or attacking us. People loved the president, and they loved this country and its values. I think Obama is the man to regain the world's respect. I think in Afghanistan we will achieve a solution there, not by increasing the number of combat troops we have in the country, but by increasing the number of schools and medical clinics and libraries they have in the country so they can see the United States as it truly is. And... um I thought I'd just relay that to the folks because I think there are some lessons learned there from a man who virtually saved the world with words and vision and respect and honesty and integrity. integrity, And um, for him to say something like that, education, 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 and building infrastructure for people instead of bombing them, I think there could be a solution there. Call me old-fashioned.
4: Well,
1: I, I don't know. I mean, uh, not to get overly political here, but Ted Sorensen uh, died only you know a, a short while into Obama's presidency. And I think had he sat back and had a, a full sort of view of what Obama was about, he may have recanted on that. And, and the other thing is uh, uh, he wasn't necessarily discussing ISIS, which is an entirely different kettle of fish. You know, this isn't the... The Red Army Faction or the Red Army Brigade, uh, you know, the, the scourge of Europe, left-wing uh, terrorist groups. Uh, we, you know, we are talking about fascists. And I, I don't know that, you know, building schools or hospitals would change their minds any more than you could change the Nazi mindset. I mean, this is a – it's a software issue. There is um, – you know, it's just bad ideology, and I don't know that there's any other way of stamping it out than just through force. However, that's another show, another topic, uh, and we'll um, we'll delve in further into uh, the JFK assassination with Brent Holland and his final interview, the final interview, with Ted Sorensen, JFK's speechwriter, advisor, closest friend. We'll do all that in just moments, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Sarrett. Brent Holland is with us. Uh, Brent, uh, tell us uh, how we can listen to and watch uh, your program out of uh, Kingston, Night Fright.
3: Oh, um, very easy to do. You can get it online, just uh, do a Google for Night Fright show or Brent Holland. And all the shows are up on a YouTube channel. You can watch them uh, at your leisure. Uh, Just like yours, Richard, they're up on YouTube and they're all free. So there's no worries there. Excellent. Uh, All right.
1: Go ahead. No, go.
3: Well, I was going to say, if you want to listen live, it's every Tuesday night between the hours of 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time. And that's on a, a online radio station called Revolution Radio. Also around Ontario, some TV Kojiko stations carry the show as well.
1: Excellent. All right, so back to Ted Sorensen. After the assassination, did Jackie Kennedy uh, reach out to him or he to her? And if so, what were those discussions about? Uh, like in terms of, you know, about the assassination itself? Did she ever, you know, suggest what she thought might have happened, or did he suggest anything to her?
3: It's funny, because when I asked, he was very open in giving during the whole interview. But as soon as I mentioned the Kennedy family, a barrier came up. And I thought, aha, he's still being protected after all these years, because... I did ask him about Carolyn, I asked him about John, who had just passed away. Uh, he would only speak superficially about Carolyn, he wouldn't really go in-depth. When I asked him about Jackie, he wouldn't go anywhere near the assassination in her, except for one little poignant story that he told, and I don't mind telling that now, which is just after JFK's death, uh, he was at Hyannisport writing his book, his very first book, called Kennedy. And it was Jackie's birthday. Jackie had called him one of the huts that was around there. She was in Hyannisport too. If he would have supper with her that night, because it was her birthday. So Sorensen said, of course he would. He'd be happy to, but he had nothing to give her, and there was no time to go to a store or anything like that. What he did have on him, because he had all his papers doing research for his book, was something that... uh, a piece of paper that JFK had doodled on during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. And he thought, you know what, I'm going to give this to her, because this is historic. Um, She'll probably like it because it was from one one of the most crucial times in his presidency, and it's personal because it's got his own doodling on it. So he gave it to her, and she was just delighted with that. Well, years later, uh, 20, 30 years later, Sorensen was having some kind of event And he received it back from Jackie, all uh, done up in a frame and just beautiful. So it was a very poignant moment. And I think that's something we need to remember on November twenty second, 2015, is the fact that not only did the world lose a great president and a great man, a family lost its father and a wife lost her husband. There was a human being involved as well. And uh, I know all too well what it's like to grow up without a dad. Um, And ever since that time, I've kind of had an empathy, if you will, for Carolyn, because I know what she's gone through. And it wasn't an easy task. And Ted gave a lot of credit to Jackie in raising the kids to be uh, so successful
1: that's very that's very true you know we we it tends to be sanitized it's the same with the assassination of of lenin we We tend to think of you know our own law well we you know the beatles will never reunite or j f k what would the world be like with you know would have been like if he had served a second term and we forget that the grisly details this was a grisly bloody murder, and a human being was ripped from this world and f- a family was absolutely Uh, devastated and uh, uh, torn asunder, and and we we tend to forget that. It it gets sort of sanitized um, through the mists of time. Uh, What did did Sorensen tell you about his views on Oswald, if anything?
3: He thought Oswald was disturbed. He thought um, he wasn't sure if he was involved But he thought that he could have been because uh, I'm trying to think of the example. I'll have to paraphrase what he told me that the military intelligence people uh, certainly had enough reasons to have JFK killed, and they could reach out to disturbed individuals such as Lee Harvey Oswald to do that for him. So for them, so I'm not sure if he thought Oswald was involved at all. Uh, for sure he thought there was a conspiracy, but he never really got into D.B. Plaza. Actually, Richard, uh, God forbid this should ever happen to you, I thought I'd blown the interview with him because I brought up D.B. Plaza. And I uh, innocently asked him, have you ever been to D.B. Plaza? Wow, he did a 180 and he got really angry.
1: Really? You
3: know, that's, He yeah, got angry you know with you? Funny. He got angry with me. He said, that's the worst day of my life. I don't want to discuss it any further. Um, let's leave it of what I've just said. And I said okay, so I went on to something else. But wow, uh, yeah, his whole demeanor just changed.
1: Well, that's raw and honest, and I, you know, one can certainly understand this was his friend, and he he lost them that that, that place. I mean, I, if that happened to me, I, I, I'd have to say I wouldn't want to go back there either.
3: Yeah, uh, it was uh, just a nightmare for him. Now I'm going to arc it over to Bobby's assassination. Both Bobby and Ted Kennedy had told Bobby to wait another four years and run in 1972 and not 1968. They said, somebody's going to kill you, Bobby. Ted Sorensen was upstairs at the Ambassador Hotel the night Bobby was killed, and he was just absolutely devastated, completely devastated. He couldn't even talk.
1: Wow, yeah, we, and that's the other thing. you know, When you're in that circle, when you're in the Kennedy circle, and you're sort of along... Not for the ride, I guess, but you're, you're, you're there, you're in Daly Plaza, then you're at the Ambassador Hotel. Uh, I mean, just horror upon horror uh, to, be affi- to be associated with the Kennedys and to witness that.
3: He also mentioned Dr. King, uh, how excited they were, uh, August 28, 1963, when Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech just down the street from the Oval Office. And he came over to the Oval Office after, and uh, how he was greeted by Kennedy, and how warm he was, and and everything else. And then he also mentioned the fact that, you know, once in a century, maybe you'll come up with a leader such as a JFK. And he felt that in the 60s, for that 10-year period or less, actually, we had JFK, we had Dr. King, and Bobby. And... For the three of those people of that stature to be taken away from any society the way they were, um, it's going to have repercussions, and those repercussions are going to be deep, deep, deep. And I think we can see going back, you know, we ended up with Nixon once Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Just think of the possibilities of Bobby had to been president. Uh, we would not have had the extenuation of the um, Vietnam War. We probably would have continued JFK's... Well, I know we would have, because Ted Sorensen told me that LBJ well, we was going to continue all of Kennedy's um, uh, foreign policy. So he would have reached out, and uh, the whole world would have just been completely, completely different than what we're seeing right now. I think we're still reaping uh, the timeline ripple, if you will, from that assassination in 1963.
1: Was it in fact a coup d'etat, and was that the moment when the executive branch was essentially taken away from the American people and, and uh, handed over to whatever we want to call them, the elites, the cabal, the military-industrial complex?
3: I don't know, and I, I'll tell you why. I, I'm i not on the camp that... President, um, I'm sorry, President Johnson was involved. I'll tell you why, because Sorensen told me Johnson went out of his way to bend arms to keep a lot of Kennedy's team right around him. He wanted to keep Kennedy's team intact, uh, which was Sorensen, Dave Powers, uh, Kenny O'Donnell, McNamara, uh, Max Taylor. Uh, all these people were handpicked by JFK. Even McComb uh, was handpicked by JFK, who was the head of the CIA at, the, at that time. The other reason is Kennedy was killed because of civil rights. It was Johnson that championed the civil rights bill and several other Kennedy bills, like the, um, uh, the poverty bill. I can't remember the proper name for it, forgive me. Uh, and, and another bill, and got them through Congress. So he continued, he took the torch and marched with it. So I don't think Johnson was involved, because I don't think the people surrounding Johnson were so far out of the loop because I think they all knew there was something going on. Certainly, Bobby did that they would have stood by and let Johnson take power. Bobby had done his own private investigation using people from the um, Justice Department, and they came back and said it was the mob. The mob had a lot to do with it, but probably anti-Castro Cubans, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and a lot of the same names uh, that come up in the Kennedy assassination. It's funny they come up again in the Bobby assassination, and it's terrifying to think that um, those same names were there. Whether or not the American people lost we the people at that point, I'm not sure. But I don't think Johnson was involved in, in any respect. Military-industrial complex, pulling the strings, wouldn't be the first time. Certainly there there was templates for the CIA and the military-industrial complex all working together prior to that uh, for forming coups around the world. You know, I think of uh, Iran. What a difference that would have made had there been no coup at that point in 1954 with Mozambique, and and others as well.
1: Right, right. Uh, Why was Sorensen so convinced just before he died that the truth was about to come out? Did it have to do with Castro stepping down from power?
3: I think at that point, you know, I examined that, and at that point it looked like Castro was about to pass away. He was very, very ill. And everybody thought he was going to die, and, and that was at that point when when Sorensen told me that thing. And as I say in my book, um, I think the reason for the cover-up to this day, although I don't know what's happening right now, is because I found out there's still missiles in Cuba. And with Castro being such a loose cannon all of his life, uh, with a fiery, fiery temper, I don't think, and given the hawks that are in the United States, uh, especially on the Republican side, I don't think they wanted to open up that can of worms again. I think they wanted to wait until Castro was gone, and a new, perhaps more approachable regime was put into into Cuba. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, but that was validated in, in a piece that was put in, I think it was 2012, April of 2012, by a Mr. Gouda from, uh, I think it was NBC, if I'm not mistaken, or ABC, um, investigative reporter, found that there were still missiles in Cuba. The idea was that after the missile crisis, part of the deal was that those missiles, all the missiles, were to be removed, and they were to be validated by UN inspectors. Well, Castro never allowed the UN inspectors in, and things kind of quieted down and died down. It looked like Castro was under control, especially by the Soviet Union. Just as Kennedy died and passed away, um, it kind of transferred over to Johnson and Johnson just let it be. That's my own perspective. I could be way off base here, but that's why I think the cover up to this day for national security reasons. Although it's getting it's wearing kind of thin, I think after all these years I think we're entitled to know what the hell was going on that day.
1: All right, Brent, thank you for spending uh, some time with us, as always. I appreciate it. And uh, what's coming up on uh, on your program?
3: Well, next week we're doing a show
1: on JFK. <laughs> Honestly, really? I'm shocked and amazed. <laughs> of course. Well, nobody does it better, Brent. Nobody does it better. Thank you so much for this.
3: Thank you so much, Richard. God bless you.
1: Likewise, my friend. The Kennedy assassination from the Oval Office to Daily Plaza. Brent Holland. All right, the website for this program is StrangePlanet.ca. Register, it's free, it's fast, it's easy. That gets you access to all the past shows, the big archive going back to the summer of 2012. And uh, say hello on Twitter at Richard Sarrett. As always, follow the truth.
0: Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, the Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. On Zoomer Radio.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me into your home, your long haul truck, your RV, your camper, your taxi, that greasy, spy, uh, greasy spoon diner just off the Trans Canada Highway, and your cabin in the woods. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Great to have you aboard, and thank you for your fine company. Uh, just a, uh, a reminder: Season four of the Conspiracy Show is uh, coming up. I know I've given you uh, lots of advanced warning, and I am still waiting on a, on a on a date. But I just want to let you know: you know we have delivered brand new episodes, and they will be available to you across Canada on Vision Television, our good friends here, uh, part of uh, Zoomer uh, Zoomer, uh, and um, the. Uh, the television show, Vision TV, again, available across Canada. And uh, we are so delighted to be uh, bringing you Season 4. And as soon as I have a, 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 um, an actual broadcast date, a debut, I will uh, give that to you. But in the meantime, Seasons uh, 1 through thir- 3 are in high rotation, as they say. You can see those in reruns on Vision TV. And they're also available, Seasons 1 through 3. The complete episodes, complete seasons in HD uh, at Amazon.com for rent or sale. And I understand in the United States, for our American listeners, you can also see those on Hulu TV. So many ways to watch, so many ways to listen. Uh, we have a um, a wonderful guest standing by Janet Sitchin, is the niece of Zechariah Sitchin, uh, the author of some 14 books. I think it was uh, 14 Uh, Of course, Zechariah passed away, uh, it's been about five years now, quite a legacy. Uh, For those of you who are fans of the History Channel's Ancient Aliens, I mean, he's really the the grandfather of that whole school of thought um, in many ways. Uh, After transcribing the the cuneiforms, the Sumerian cuneiforms, many of which sit in the basement in the uh, museum in London, England, and uh, that's the sumerian the the sumerian creation story uh right there on these cuneiforms and he transcribed many of them and uh, brought them to us in his his many books um you'll be familiar of course with uh you know the 12th planet and uh we'll get into all of that with janet sitchin in um in just a few moments delighted to have her with us uh, her book is called the anunnaki chronicles a Zachariah Sitchin reader, in, including a uh, never-before-published writings. Uh, what else can I let you know uh, about? Well, the Conspiracy Show app, of course. We're very excited about that. Uh, it's a free download from iTunes and uh, also a Google Play. Uh, and while you're at it, you really want to uh, download the free Zoomer radio app as well. I I, I know I go on about it, but it's just an amazing app because it really transforms your smartphone, your uh, iPhone, or your Android into an old transistor radio. And if you're nostalgic like I am and you remember your first transistor radio, uh, you really want to download the Zoomer app. Not only can you listen to The Conspiracy Show using that app, but, of course, all of the great programs here at Zoomer Radio. George Shinescu's Big Band Sunday Night, of course, which precedes mine. And uh, you can take Zoomer Radio with you wherever you go all right uh tim spreen is back in the saddle after a long absence sitting in for the uh well ian robertson our regular technical producer now is off um gallivanting somewhere touring with his rockabilly band but it's great to have tim spreen back twisting the knobs and dials and Albert vinzel is here running our hangout on air and if you want to uh check out the live stream on youtube just go to my my uh, twitter at Richard Serrett, go to the Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. And if you go to the top of the Twitter feed, you'll find a tweet there containing the link to the HOA. You just click on it, and you're in. And you can watch the program stream live on YouTube. And if you don't catch it live, you can go back and um, go to our YouTube channel, which is what, Albert? Conspiracy Show 1?
3: With Richard Serrett.
1: Conspiracy show with Richard Serrett. Yeah. You just yeah into you. You just plug that into YouTube and you'll find it. All the YouTube streams are there. All right, let's get into this, shall we? I'm looking forward to this. Janet Sitchin worked as her uncle's assistant and is the webmaster for Sitchin.com. A data integration expert with a degree in computer science, she lives outside Miami, Florida, and again the author of the Anunnaki Chronicles. A Zachariah Sitchin reader. Uh, Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Janet Sitchin. How are you?
4: I'm good. How are you? Very
1: well. Thank you. Wow. What a legacy your uncle had.
4: Uh, Yes. It's pretty incredible. I I was just actually at the the Miami Book Fair um, continues this weekend, and I was there with the publisher of of Zachariah's books and, and this new book as well. And it was just amazing to see so many other books and authors that touched on subjects that... Were brought to light originally by my uncle,
1: and and what were the circumstances? When did you start uh, working uh, with your uncle?
4: Um, I, working with him is a little bit of an exaggeration, but he had seminars um, around the country where he would spend a weekend with his readers, and he would, um, you know, talk about the the subjects, um, you know, various subjects about ancient civilizations and uh, the things that are in his books, and uh, for. Not the very first ones, but for almost all of the others, I would help with registration. I'd help make sure the audiovisual was set up, you know, the, whatever hotel we were that was hosting it, took care of those things. Uh, I would make sure he had a glass of water, you know, just little things like that, um, and helping with registration and, and uh, greeting the, the readers as they came in to join the seminar.
1: Talk. Oh, sorry, I had a little mic problem there. Tell me about the, the, the 12th planet for those I mean, I know this is a daunting task. It's, you know, we've got about 45 minutes here, but uh, really a lot of this information, it revolves around the 12th planet and of course it is it is back in the news because there are many people who are, you know, quite certain, researchers and so forth, that, that the 12th planet is heading back our way and uh, that the um, The 12th planet's return may in fact explain a lot of the UFO incursions uh, here on Earth. So maybe we should take some time and just talk to me a little bit about the 12th planet and what your your uncle Zechariah, what his theories were about the 12th planet.
4: Okay, well um, his interest started as as a young boy reading some of the enigmatic passages that were in Genesis and and in, in the Old Testament. And he started looking at ancient documents, not just the, the Hebrew Bible, but Sumerian and Akkadian. He learned to read uh, cuneiform and went to museums and saw physical evidence and, and did a lifetime of research before he started writing. And what he found from the stories that the, the ancient Sumerians told was that there is actually a 10th planet in our solar system because the other, the other two bodies are the sun and our moon. Um, but there were 10 planets in our solar system. The 10th one, uh, because we're also including Pluto, we haven't demoted Pluto in, in this um it's still considered a planet of, for the Sumerians and for this discussion. So this 10th planet, Nibiru, has a very large elliptical orbit it got pulled into our solar system and kind of created some disruptions. Um, So during our prehistory, it collided with Earth um, at least twice, and the last time it broke Earth, which was called Tiamat, in half, and what we're left with as far as our planet today, especially if you you took all the water away from the planet and just looked at the mass of of Earth, it looks like a, a planet that was broken in half. Um, and it's really the water that makes it look cylindrical again. Um, so his, his theories from these writings, and, and he always said he was a reporter and, and not a writer, so he's reporting on what the Sumerians and the other ancient people said. Tiamat is, was, um, became, half of it became Earth, and the other half became the asteroid belt. Uh, genetic material also was exchanged between Nibiru and Earth. And life developed, more advanced life developed on both planets. It developed faster on Nibiru. And they came um, with various things of the technology. They ended up coming to Earth kind of not on purpose, but they came here and they found that there was gold here. And they needed gold because they needed to repair their atmosphere that was in trouble. And they started mining gold here and discovered that it's kind of a lot of work. Um, They started mining in the Persian Gulf because that's where they landed, and they found that there was um, gold in the water there, but it wasn't very effective, it wasn't an efficient um, way to get the gold. And then they started doing more mining in the southern part of Africa, and they decided that was a lot of work. And there were already hominids and other animals here on Earth, again, not as advanced as them. And they started trying to see if they could create an intelligent worker. So they started genetic engineering experiments. Things didn't really work out so well. And finally, they decided to, um, to artificially inseminate uh, using some of their DNA and using the DNA of the hominids on Earth, artificially inseminate uh, some of the Anunnaki women and let them be surrogate mothers. And this is how they created the atom or man. And we, uh, we look like them. They're taller than us. But so, uh, from our perspective, they're giants, and the the word giants and Nephilim um, is one of, is that's really the trigger word uh, in my uncle's story about what caused uh, him to really be fascinated and interested and start exploring this. Um, so that that's kind of the the very basics of what his theory is, and and the other component here is that he looked at the stories in the Bible and myths of the ancient world and all of these. Um, stories and personalities in the tablets, and he said, "What if this isn't allegory and simile and myth and so on? What if it's history?" So that was his, his um, paradigm, and that was that's really what is different between what he researched and what others who have translated these documents have been looking at.
1: And also, uh, and, and a fabulous job, in, really, in recapping the uh, sort of the twelfth planet uh, scenario there. But it also explains why. Uh, in Sumer, which is um, you know Babylon, modern day you know, or Mesopotamia, rather modern- day Iraq, why a civilization sprang forth so suddenly uh, when the rest of the, the world, the known world at that time, they were still you know crawling around in mud huts, and, and yet in Sumer we had libraries and modern agricultural techniques and so forth, and the intervention, of the Anunnaki might explain, you know, why the civilization civilization sprang forth in the uh, the Fertile Crescent at that particular time.
4: Um, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the Anunnaki means uh, in Sumerian those who from heaven to earth came, and the ancient Sumerians what they wrote was that everything that they know the Anunnaki taught them. So the beginnings of agriculture and um, metallurgy and schools and methods of law and rules for commerce and all of these advances, uh, writing and arithmetic and and so on, that created an advanced civilization, art, at a high level of art, um, all of this came from them.
1: All right, we'll take a time out. Janet Sitchin, the niece of the great Zechariah Sitchin. The book is The Anunnaki Chronicles, a Zachariah Sitchin Reader, back with more of our conversation right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Janet Sitchin is with with us, the niece of Zachariah Sitchin. Uh, She served as her uncle's lecture assistant at his many seminars and is the webmaster for www.sitchin.com. She's a data integration expert with a degree in computer science, and her book is... Or a, the, the book that she edited, is the Anunnaki Chronicles, a Zechariah Sitchin reader, and it includes never-before-published writings. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, Janet, how are we to understand uh, uh, the, the creation myth, if you will, that's outlined in the Bible, and that would be, of course, in Genesis, how are we to understand or read Genesis um, in light of, your, your father's research, the Anunnaki, the, the arrival of the Anunnaki and the 12th planet, and so forth?
4: Um, my uncle didn't feel that they were inconsistent with each other. He actually thought that what he was finding in his research actually showed the veracity of the Bible. I, I think he also thought that a lot of the stories in the Old Testament were kind of um, abbreviated versions of stories that people already knew. So that's why some of them don't go into a lot of detail. Um, but the, there's also um, the Sumerian creation myth called the Enuma Elish, and that um, talks more about the creation of the planets and, and everything else. But it, it, it goes along very very closely with what's in the Bible. It's just that what the Bible is a very brief version of it.
1: So in Genesis, I mean, it, it refers to Elohim, uh, which would be plural for gods, which would be plural for God, meaning God, so Elohim are, were they the Anunnaki then
4: um, that 's what my uncle believes, so um, and, and actually, when I read the bible I, I read it in english, so it 's a little bit different than reading it in the original Hebrew, like my uncle did, um, but I found that there are several different voices through uh, the Old Testament, especially I, even just looking at the first five books, the, uh, the five books of Moses that we consider the, the Torah. Um, and there are many cases where it talks about Elohim, which is plural. If it was Eloheinu, that would be singular. And it talks about the Elohim deciding, for example, to not tell man about the flood and then um, changing their heart and, and telling Noah... Uh, how to build an ark and if you start looking at the Sumerian versions of this it's actually more than one of the gods or or the Anunnaki who made the decision to let man perish in the flood and Enki who was one of the ones who was most involved with the genetic engineering of man and who felt very paternal toward man who told uh, in in the the Sumerian version it's called uh, the sudra, not Noah, but same person, um, about how to build an ark. So he went against the other Anunnaki in making this decision. And there are many other places that talk about uh, Elohim instead of just one God. And and since one of the main premises of, of the Bible and the Ten Commandments is that there's only one God, uh, it seems not uh, in accordance with each other to think about multiple gods, and, and what, what is our one god, um, where, does they, where does he fit into this? Uh, but the Anunnaki believed in a creator of all. And my uncle felt that the Anunnaki were actually carrying out the intentions of the creator of all by, by them coming here, by genetically engineering man. This was um, what the creator wanted. And they were acting as emissaries, whether that's knowingly or unknowingly, but that's, that's what he felt.
1: But their intentions were essentially to create a slave race to mine gold uh, so that they could sort of restore their atmosphere on their home planet. That hardly seems altruistic.
4: Well, they were not the gods. They were not the creator of all. We, um, you know, my uncle would say that they're gods with a small g, uh, the creator of all would be who we consider the God that we're praying to, but uh, and it's true that the Elohim in the Bible, who we think of as being God, m- there are many voices, and it seems like it's more than one person there, and it even implies it by saying Elohim instead of Elohenu. So my uncle's feeling was that the God of the of the Bible are the Anunnaki, but they're whether they're doing it altruistically or selfishly or, or whatever to create us, that was still part of the, the larger plan. How, uh,
1: how should we understand the, uh, the serpent in the Garden of Eden in Genesis in terms of the Anunnaki and the Twelfth Planet?
4: Well, the serpent, um, there, there's a lot of things about the serpent. One that's interesting is the serpent is, even today, the symbol of medicine, the entwined serpent. Uh, which is also the DNA helix is the entwined uh, version of this. And the tree of knowledge was actually something that gave us the ability to procreate. So we were eating some of the foods of the gods that we were not supposed to have. The original humans that were genetically engineered were not able to procreate on their own. And after they... uh, ate from the tree of knowledge, they ended up with the ability to procreate. So whether that was something that Anki, as the snake, gave to man with with part of the um, medical procedures and genetic engineering, whether he gave it intentionally, whether he gave it accidentally, but um, that was something that we were given afterwards And the snake. There's a lot of connections with the idea of the snake. And um, I don't recall the exact... Uh, there's something in uh, one of the books that talks about this, but the translation for snake. There's some other subtleties of meaning that could could be more than just talking about a serpent.
1: Now, the the Anunnaki, if I'm not mistaken, were have been described. I'm not sure whether they were described thusly in the the cuneiforms, but were sort of described as feathered uh, feathered serpents. Uh, so, is there a connection to the feathered Feathered serpent god of the, sort of the ancient Mayans, uh, Quetzalcoatl.
4: Um, there is because there's a point where one of the Anunnaki went to the Americas, and um, I'm I'm trying to remember which one it was. But basically, that he was became known as Quetzalcoatl. I know one of the names of the the one I'm thinking of is named Toast, but there's there's other names. Um, that's more the Egyptian name for him but he went to the Americas and my uncle felt that he was who they thought was Quetzalcoatl and he went there looking and he found gold also he he kind of went there because there were some things going on and he was sort of banished for a while and and needed to go away and that's how he ended up in the Americas and uh, and then they found that there were a lot of gold in the Andes, and started mining it there and smelting it there. And, and there is a lot of constructs in the old world, in uh, and there is a, a lot of discussion in the book "The Lost Realms" about how much of what they were doing was metallurgy there and refining the gold.
1: And of course, in in places like Peru, uh, we we had La Morzuli up, up here recently. We flew him up to do a a, a live event, and uh, he's. Uh, along with a number of other researchers, been discovering, unearthing these elongated skulls, and well, they're on display in museums, for God's sakes, in Peru. Uh, and I mean, what was your your uncle's uh, view of these? If he had a, a view of these elongated skulls, did he believe that these, and they've been described as the Nephilim, uh, that they are evidence of this hybridization program? That um, uh, may have taken place in 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 some researchers' views. This was a hybrid program between the the they call them the fallen angels uh, and the daughters of men, or I guess in your uncle's perspective, it would be the Anunnaki uh, and an uh, early primitive humans. Uh, but did he did he write about or look into these elongated skulls? Um, I
4: don't think he talked. About the skull shape itself, the only one that he really mentioned um, much about their their head, <laughs> other than that uh, the Anunnaki looked like us. They were much taller than us, or we looked like them. And you know, so in the Bible where it says that we were created in their image, well, we were we're, we're smaller than them, but but we look like them. So the idea of the elongated heads, I don't know um, exactly where that fits in, and I. I don't remember hearing my uncle talk about that in detail, but in his book, uh, there, And There Were Giants Upon the Earth, he goes into great detail talking about uh, Queen Ninpuabi. Um, she is buried in, in Egypt in um, a great amount of pomp and circumstance. I mean, the, the, those that were very important had slaves buried with them, had all kinds of gold and wealth and everything like that. and her grave is beyond any of the others, any of the other kings or queens that were found. And he believes that this is one of the particular Anunnaki that was described in the writings and that died on Earth. Many of the other Anunnaki did not die on Earth. They went back to Nibiru, and that's where they die. They're not immortal. It's just their very long orbit uh, makes them... Uh, a year to them is 3,600 of our years, so it's, it's a very, uh, they live a very long time. But uh, Ninfuabi died on earth and uh, was buried somewhere here. And her description, for Nanunaki, an she was relatively short, and she had an enormous head. So it wasn't the elongated shape head that you're talking about, um, but that's the only one that I really heard about a head, you know, something different about their head.
1: What about the the Anunnaki's role in building the pyramids? I mean, there are other um, enormous structures, uh, ancient structures on on the Earth. Whether we're talking about the standing stones across continental Europe and in England, the uh, the giant uh, heads on Easter Island, uh, pyramids in Mexico, in Egypt, in, in other in Thailand, and so forth, were the Anunnaki involved? I mean, are these remnants of Anunnaki architecture?
4: Um, My uncle certainly believes that it's so. And the the Great Pyramids themselves, after the flood, they needed some additional landmarks for uh, landing their their aircraft on Earth. So they they needed to basically know uh, the runway and have physical landmarks, and they had lost some of them during the flood, so they built the pyramids to replace them. They also um, had some sort of equipment inside the pyramids uh, my uncle thinks that maybe it was communication equipment that let them communicate between um, the planet, possibly b- between a spaceship that was near here, uh, or maybe the planet when it, uh, Nibiru when it was close to Earth, or a way station on Mars that he felt was there to help with moving cargo. Uh, because of the reduced uh, gravity on Mars, it was easier to load a, a larger cargo to move it and send it to Nibiru. So he definitely felt that, that those pyramids were built by the Anunnaki. Um, he has a whole discussion about Stonehenge and uh, some of those other kinds of, uh, of um, temples and things like that that had a, an alignment with both the, the solstice and uh, the equinox and seemed to be predictive of eclipses and, and other things. And that was just useful astronomical information for them to have. And so he feels that that was built up for predicting those.
1: I I, um, I I spoke with your your uncle. Um, I'm not sure how long ago it was. At least ten years ago uh, on, on the program. And um, it seems to me we're coming into a break here. We'll we'll pick up on this on the other side. But I I seem to recall having a conversation with him about a Stargate, uh, and and whether or not that might have been the means. Uh, by which the Anunnaki uh, sort of were transported from either the mothership to here on Earth or from their planet to here on Earth, and whether or not that that Stargate may still exist somewhere beneath the sands of modern-day Mesopotamia. We'll talk about that with Janet Sitchin, niece of Zechariah Sitchin, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Uh, back to my conversation with Janet Sitchin, niece of the great Zachariah Sitchin. In just a moment, just a programming note, and I'll hold the uh, the book up to the, uh, the webcam. Are we getting that, Albert? That's our uh, next guest coming up next week, of course, Graham Hancock. And uh, the book is Magicians of the Gods, the uh, sequel uh, to Fingerprints of the Gods. And Graham, of course, will be in Toronto coming up in uh, mid-December, December the 13th and uh, my good friend Patrick uh, White from Conspiracy Culture, great friends of the program, conspiracyculture.com. Go there, and you can order tickets to that live event. That's Graham Hancock, and he'll be on this program uh, coming up next week, Magicians of the Gods. All right, Janet Sitchin, mentioning my uh, conversation with your uh, late uncle uh, many years ago, and I'm I'm trying to remember, I think we discussed something about a Stargate uh, maybe as the the, the mode of, of um, uh, transporting the Anunnaki back and forth from our planet to theirs or to the mothership. Am I remembering correctly?
4: Um, I don't know uh, what he may have thought about that in particular. I know that in the movie Stargate, the first one that came out, there was something where the professor is talking about... Um, Egyptology and other things is before they, he's involved with investigating the Stargate there and there is a, something about the um, forgery inside the Great Pyramid that attributed um, building it to Khufu. But um, So I know that there was that connection that he felt that um, that came from his writing that that was where it, it kind of became obvious about that but as far as an actual Stargate like that that could move um, through space and be a shortcut. I'm not sure what my uncle thought about that in particular.
1: Because when you get deep into sort of exopolitics, it's been uh, even suggested uh, that the existence of this Stargate uh, may have been one of the motivations for the first Gulf War. That there was a race to get to the Stargate. Uh, Saddam Hussein was looking for it. He had hired. Uh, some German archaeologists. It, it's known that he had hired this team of archaeologists. Uh, what they were looking for, we're not sure. But it's, again, it's been sort of surmised that perhaps they were looking for the Stargate, and the uh, NATO forces and their allies were in a rush to get over there to find the same Stargate. It's it's certainly uh, sort of interesting bar talk, if nothing else. Um, the 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 orbit of the twelfth planet is it thirty six thousand years? It comes around supposedly.
4: 3,600 years.
1: 3,600, uh, my apologies, yes, 3,600.
4: Right. That's, that's plus or minus, it's not exact, and actually I was just rereading a section of the book and it was talking about how um, it could potentially be more or less depending on some other circumstances with the other planets and, and how um, Nibiru comes into the orbit, because um, the one thing about Nibiru that's that's different, um, well, there's several things that are different about it and the orbit of the other planets. One is that it's at an, at an angle, it's not on the same plane as the other planets. So if you think about the other planets orbiting around a central object, they're, they're sort of on a flat surface orbiting that, that object, if you want to think of it. And Nibiru is at an angle to that surface, so um, that's part of why we don't really know where it is, because there's such a vast amount of space to search to find it. Um, and it is affected by the uh, orbits of the other planets, whether it's um, any collisions that it might have uh, with, say, the moon of another planet or, or something else along the way, or the positioning, because it comes in between many of the other planets as it comes close closer to the sun and, clo- and thus closer to Earth.
1: Is, is the... Um, is Planet X responsible for um, well, for example, we have uh, Venus, which rotates, I believe, in the uh, opposite uh, direction of the other planets. We have Uranus, uh, and its rotational axis is, is tilted by about 90 degrees. Uh, can these, these be explained uh, by, by planet X?
4: Um, it could be from, from collisions in, in and times. Now, I'm not really, I don't know about Venus uh, rotation, but most of the planets rotate in a counterclockwise direction, and Nibiru rotates in a clockwise direction, so that's considered a retrograde orbit. Um, and it's a, a similar kind of orbit as Halley's Comet. So it, it's, a, it's a longer period. Halley's Comet is, what, about 75 years? And Nibiru is thirty six hundred years, but it's basically that that same kind of thing. One of the moons of um, one of the outer planets. I'm thinking it's Jupiter, but I may be wrong. Uh, But one of the moons is at an angle, and um, you know that's also somewhat unusual. And could be because of of some past collision as Nibiru came through. there are many of the orbits of Nibiru that came near Earth with no impact or, or issues or uh, upheavals on Earth. But then there are some that seem to have caused some upheavals. For example, the uh, cause of the deluge, from what my uncle found, is that um, as Nibiru started coming close to Earth and the gravity of Nibiru started impacting the ice caps in the Antarctic They slid into the ocean and caused a great tidal wave that created the the flood that we know of from that time. So there are some times that when Nibiru comes nearby that there are all kinds of things that the gravity brings into play and upheavals on Earth. But not all of the times that it's come has that been the case.
1: All right. uh, We'll take a time out, Janet. When we come back, we'll uh, find out when uh, Planet X is due to uh, swing by again. And could its arrival have anything to do with the modern UFO phenomenon? Back with more of our conversation right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Uh, welcome back. This is the Anunnaki Chronicles. Can you see that, Albert, on the, uh, the uh, live web stream? That's Janet Sitchin's uh, new work. She's uh, edited this. It's a Zechariah Sitchin reader, includes never-before-published writings, and uh, we are here to talk about her uh, uncle's work. Um, where were we going? We were going to talk uh, about the uh, arrival of, the, of uh, Planet X, and uh, never a, a week goes by, Janet, where I don't get an email from somebody who, you know, claims that they're aiming their their, uh, their iPhone up at the sky towards the sun with some special filter on it. And uh, they post this video on YouTube and maintaining that they can prove that, that Planet X is headed our way. Uh, what would your uncle have made of all this? I mean, did did he think, for example, that he might live to see the return of Planet X or did he think it was imminent?
4: Um, I think it's more or less imminent, but exactly the timing uh, depends on a lot of things. And, and in his book, The End of Days, he spends a long time um, using different kinds of calculations to figure out when it could possibly come. And I, I recently uh, looked through that section just to see, because I get a lot of questions from the website of people that are worried that they heard it you know, in three months and, and what should they do, and it's like I tell them, relax. Uh, but um, according to the book and it depends which calculations you're looking at um, probably the most likely time for them to come or the planet to to come because they they may be able to come uh, ahead of the the planet or at other times but it may um, be near us the earliest is around 2060 and most likely it's closer to 2900 would be the next time that the planet comes near Earth. And and this, there are many different calculations, and it, my uncle goes into great detail to explain them and all of the reasoning in the book, The End of Days. So uh, if you're really interested in, in knowing all of those details, I'd encourage you to take a look there. But that's basically the window of, of time when a planet might be coming near us. So it, I don't think he expected to live to 2060, um, but uh that would probably be about the earliest and the Anunnaki themselves should be able to come sooner than that because they have spaceships and they have way I whether they have a stargate or not I don't know but if they're just coming even in more conventional spaceships as the planet gets closer it's easier for them to uh to come here in a spaceship and it's also possible for them to come back and forth um, after the planet kind of makes its round uh, on the other side of Right now, it, it would be coming toward us, and at some point, it's going to orbit the sun and then be moving away from us. So there's a, a period of time at, at this end of the elliptical orbit where uh, they can still come and go, and I, exactly that distance I don't know. Um, my uncle felt that while they had a base on Earth um, doing work here, they were also had a presence on Mars and had a way station there Um some of the the folks that are looking at these theories are, are wondering if there is, again, a presence on Mars or if some of the UFOs might be emissaries that are coming and checking us out ahead of time or, or something along those lines. And my uncle will never comment specifically on those kinds of, of things, whether um, what people are saying are UFOs, whether they're real and if this is what they're doing. But but it's, it, it was some things that were discussed, What exactly what he believed, I, I'm not sure.
1: And, and did he have an opinion as to whether the the next swing by of Planet X would bring with it a cataclysmic event here on
4: Earth? Um, I don't think that it was clear whether that would happen or not. Um, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't the last time when there was the deluge, or was it the last? No, it wasn't the last time. The last time uh, they came would have been around 550 B.C., plus or minus, um, so... There, there weren't any cataclysmic events then, so it's hard to say whether that would be the case or not.
1: Would that have coincided with the, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, for example?
4: Um, I don't know uh, with the dates. I, 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 I would have to take a look, but I'm, I'm not sure.
1: All right, I'm exposing my ignorance of the Old Testament here, but I'm just trying to, to, to do the math. Um, so every time the um, planet X swings by and the Anunnaki uh... come uh, here on earth are they also sort of upgrading our dna upgrading our evolutionary process
4: um... i don't think they're doing that i mean there are definitely were sometimes through history that they did some some tweaking but i don't think that they're doing that now i think when we got the ability to procreate that was probably about the last time they did anything and uh... my uncle one of the reasons that he felt that maybe finding um, or doing some genetic engineering, genetic, genetic DNA investigation on uh, Nin Huabi who I mentioned earlier, uh, was that he thought there may be something in the DNA that we find is dissimilar from human DNA, and that may be some of the genes that they withheld from us that give us longevity. So that we, we got the ability to procreate, but we did not get the ability uh, to have the great longevity that they had. And there were also certain foods and things like that that um, they ate that helped with that, even while they were on Earth. Um, but those that, that uh, of the Anunnaki that were on Earth did live a shorter life than those that remained on Nibiru. So um, I don't think that they did anything with our DNA in the in the meantime, since those that early uh, time when we became able to procreate. Uh,
1: but since the the modern humans. Uh the, the modern human race was genetically engineered. Should we not all then continue to carry some trace of the Anunnaki in our DNA?
4: I would say that's probably true. I mean, if we consider that um, that a portion of our original DNA was from the Anunnaki, and if you look in the uh, in Genesis, and it talks about. Uh, the uh, the first generations, they talk about living a, a very extended lifetime, you know, a thousand years, 900 years. Uh, you know, they, they talk about those generations and the length of their lives.
1: Methuselah, Noah, old, Noah, yes, they all lived yes. 600 years plus.
4: Um, and it could be that that was because they um, they were partially Anunnaki, and so they had some of those genes. Um if we were all created from that, then we should all have some of that. And, and I've heard some theories that maybe um, so, many of our, the genes in our DNA are dormant, and maybe um, some of these are Anunnaki genes that if we knew how to turn them on in some way, it would help prevent disease, it would help uh, give us longevity, and you know, all kinds of things.
1: Talk to me about the, the, uh, the never-before-published writings included in the Anunnaki Chronicles, Janet.
4: Well, the Anunnaki Chronicles itself, the, the book, it's an anthology of um, many of Zachariah's ideas. So it's chapters from a number of his previous works and hopefully in an order that, that helps um, new readers understand it and is useful for longtime readers to, um, to explain it to friends and to refresh their knowledge of some major topics. But also included here are other articles and uh, talks and other things that Zachariah had written but were never in published form. So um, we have some that, where he kind of gives a summary of the major topics in his book, The 12th Planet, uh, where he, uh, there are a couple of talks uh, to some UFO groups that are in here, um, and, and a number, a few, a few letters that he wrote to the New York Times editorial section, uh, a number of those kinds of things that we hope um, are the readers find interesting, especially the readers that have read everything else and and, and probably are eager to have a little bit more.
1: Sure. Uh, what did your uncle make of the sort of the modern day UFO movement? I mean, much has been. Um, Let's face it, you know, many of the researchers are standing on your your uncle's shoulders. Um, What did he make of of the the UFO movement? The disclosure Um, movement, for example, the disclosure movement.
4: There there are several times that that he spoke um, to UFO conferences, and one of the things that he says is that he doesn't know, uh, you know, about the UFOs that people um, are talking about today, but he knows that in the Bible it mentions several occurrences where there were UFOs, although at the time they weren't unidentified. They were, they knew, people knew about them. And so they were not that unusual. But um, but the idea of, of UFOs or um, whether they're maybe identified objects, uh, he believed that there are many stories in the Bible that talk about those, the, uh, the incident with Jacob's ladder and maybe even the way that the, um, the clouds of glory led the uh, Israelites through the desert, he believes might have been uh, an Anunnaki spaceship kind of hidden in a cloud or something that helped uh, move everybody along. So he feels that um, there certainly is the possibility of life on other planets and that they've been here. And uh, obviously the whole idea of the Anunnaki is exactly that. So um, he's very, uh, was very open to the idea. I, he didn't really comment specifically when people said about their UFO stories or, or things like that. Um, he did have people that spoke with him usually more anonymously because they were concerned about their own careers and, and other things, uh, but there were NASA scientists that spoke with him and seemed to corroborate this. Uh, he talked about um, a speech that Ronald Reagan gave at the United Nations, and he talked about how unifying it would be to um, to us on Earth if the moment that we were threatened with um, with an alien uh, aliens coming to Earth, that all of our differences and, and everything else would, would certainly melt away as we um, work together to to figure out what was needed at the time and how unifying that would be. And it was a very interesting time for Reagan to have made that kind of comment. Um, It was at a time where where there were still uh, tensions between Russia and the U.S. and um, talking about kind of melting some of those. And that was actually at the time when a lot of that uh, thawed and uh, there were better relations. So I don't know if there was something going on. They Also, there were plans uh, for how... The nations of the earth would deal with with such a situation and to start making plans like that um, i i don't know if that was just idle planning or if there was something more to it
1: well uh for those that are interested in the whole sort of disclosure um, aspect of ufology and so forth if the, uh, the calculations are correct. Uh, we will have disclosure one way or the other by um, as soon as or 2060 or as late as a 2900. So uh, it will either be in um, our children's lifetime or our great-great-great-great-grandchildren's gen- great uh, lifetime. And in any event, uh, Janet, I have enjoyed our conversation immensely. Thank you so much, and congratulations on the Anunnaki Chronicles.
4: Thank you very much.
1: Janet Sitchin right. Thanks to uh, Tim Spreen Great to have him Aboard again Albert Vinzel As always Back next week With Graham Hancock And Debbie Papadakis In the meantime Don't be afraid There is nothing Concealed That won't be revealed And nothing hidden That won't be made known What you hear in the dark Speak in the light What I say in a whisper Proclaim from the housetops Move over Aphrodite
0: I'm coming home Good night